It's good to be back uh, all together. Pope uh, John Paul II, in an address he gave in 2000, said this, is it hard to believe in the third millennium? Yes, it is hard. There's no need to hide it. It is hard, but with the help of grace, it can be done. And so in this afternoon's conference, I'd like to kind of take that address as the, uh, the starting, the jumping off point, and to speak about obstacles that we might encounter in pursuing this greatness that God has called us to, this greatness of following in the, the path of the saints of seeking holiness. Um, and I'd like to focus especially on internal obstacles. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't external obstacles to pursuing holiness in the third millennium, people in situations outside of us, but um, just given the amount of time and all, I'd like to uh, focus on the internal ones because I think in a certain way, they're the first, the primary ones. In other words, if we get over internal obstacles, it makes dealing with external ones easier. Um, so I'd like to speak about a, a few of them in this talk, so just in terms of where we're going and what I'm trying to do. Um, I guess a, a first obstacle to pursuing holiness is the one that, the kind of attitude that says something like, um, well, holiness and being a saint, I mean, it's a lot to expect. Um, I mean, isn't it enough to uh, go to Mass on Sunday, pray some, and try to be a good person? I mean, isn't that sufficient? Um, I guess in response, I'd ask you to think about it in the context of relationships. Not so much what to do or not do, but in relationships, especially your most important ones say, with a spouse. Um, I know a, a young woman who uh, recently graduated from college, and she shared with me the story about how her fiancé proposed to her. So this was maybe, let's see, they're getting married in January, maybe last March. Uh, they're both from Florida, um, and one day he took her to an island resort off one of the Florida Keys. Um, he knew what he was going to do. She didn't. I mean, she just had no clue that he was thinking that this was the day he was going to propose to her. So she, as she related it to me, you know, we went to this resort and we had what she said was a delicious meal. Um, and at the end of it, he said to her, let's go down by the water and have a picture taken. So he got the waitress who was already in on the whole thing to come down with them. So anyway, they get down by the water, and she's thinking, oh, we're going to stand here, and the waitress is going to take a picture, and it's going to be over. Well, he drops down to a knee and presents her with an engagement ring, including um, it had a diamond which had been in his family for generations. And as she said to me, he told her subsequently that he planned to talk eloquently about how special she was and all this, but he got so nervous that all he could blurt out was, marry me? <laughs> well, she was totally surprised. And so she just started crying and, as she said, covered her face with her hands. Well, meanwhile, he's still on his knee and he hasn't gotten any answer. <laughs> so he's like, please? <laughs> 
and she uh, finally that brought her back to reality, snapped her out of her uh, her uh, kind of surprise, and she said, "Oh yes, of course." Um, and she shared with me. She said, "You know, it's an experience I'll never forget." She said, "I have never uh, felt so loved." So beautiful story, right? Okay, let's put that on one side for a moment. Now compare it with this one. Same scenario. Um, and the boyfriend, when proposing to the girlfriend, says, just picking a name out of the hat, Sally. Sally, you know, as I've thought about you and our relationship, I've come to realize that you are better than a number of girls. Um, you know, you're better than a number of girls I've known. But, but you know, truth be told, you're, you're kind of in the middle. Um, um, but, 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 you know, I'm okay with that. Will you marry me? Okay, now, I mean, when we say that, girl, we say, you know, show this guy the door, right? I mean, really, shouldn't she legitimately expect some passion about the relationship, some fire to hear, I think you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, you're, you're so special to me? If that's the case in our human relationships, our most important human relationships, in a certain way, is it any wonder that God would want that in our relationship with us. That he would want something more than just kind of middle-of-the-road interest. To pursue greatness in our relationship with God is to pursue loving God wholeheartedly. And that's what we commonly call holiness. Um, or think about it in this sense. Um, it... To love God wholeheartedly, he calls us to it because he knows, one, that we're capable of it, and two, that it really is what we want. Um, so think about it in terms of uh, the most important aspects of your life, like a career. Okay, shouldn't somebody who's entering into a career in which they're going to devote the next 40 to 50 years of their life and what, 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week in that, in that job? Shouldn't they pursue a profession in which they give themselves to it, something that they really want to do? I mean, who wants to spend that much time in a career where you just go through the motions, grumbling and complaining about what you have to do all the time? I mean, did you ever work with somebody like that? Or did you, even worse, did you ever try to supervise somebody like that? I mean, it's a real pain. Um, I don't think I've mentioned this to you before, but I used to be a lawyer. Um, yeah, for about 15 years, I practiced law. And um, when I got out of law school, I really didn't know much about practicing law. Um, I knew a lot about where to find the law, but I didn't really know much at all about the actual practice of it. And I was um, especially blessed in that my first uh, position with a firm, I worked for an experienced attorney, and he was um, very generous in terms of uh, taking me under his wing and showing me the ropes. But I remember very clearly one time he called me into his office, and he asked me to take over a case from another lawyer who had just left the firm. And as he gave me the file, he said to me, "You know, when you look into when you look into it." What you're going to find is that this previous attorney had done only the bare minimum. He said, when you look through there, 
you're going to find nothing that shows any initiative or ingenuity. Um, this, attorney, this attorney would not be sued for malpractice, but really he had only done what was required. And the clear implication from my boss to me was, do not practice law like this. I mean, obviously I, I remember it to this day, it's probably 30 years ago. Um, shouldn't someone who's going to enter into a career pursue one in which they can give themselves? Or, or taking this lawyer example, at least don't we want our lawyer who's taken on our case to have some kind of passion and investment in this thing? Okay. Um, the reason is because we really are happiest and most fulfilled when we can give ourselves over to something with passion, creativity, ingenuity. Pope John Paul II again. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourselves to be grounded down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourself humbly and patiently to improving yourselves and society. Sisters, I, I um, propose to you that Jesus knows that we were born to give ourselves fully and that in doing this, it is what will ultimately make us happy. And that's why he calls us to pursue him wholeheartedly. I guess a, a second kind of obstacle to this pursuit of holiness is uh, sin, either past sin or present sin. At times, uh, I've encountered people who think that this prevents them from becoming holy. Um, to speak about this obstacle, I'd like to um, take a look at the story of the encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. You, I reprinted it there on your sheet. So as Luke recounts it, he, Jesus, came to Jericho and intended to pass through the town. Now a man there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, and just a brief commentary, the fact that he was a chief tax collector and a wealthy man are not two unrelated realities. Um, the Roman system was that they simply um, appointed somebody to be the tax collector and gave him an amount that he was to raise. And then it was up to him to go to the individuals and get whatever he thought they could pay. And anything over his quota, he kept as his salary. So, I mean, it was just a system ripe for graft and corruption and gouging. So the fact that he was a chief tax collector and a wealthy man, I think, are very closely related. Okay, so uh, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he could not see him because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When he, Jesus, reached the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus came down quickly and received Jesus with joy. 
When they all saw this, the onlookers, they began to grumble, saying, He's gone to stay at the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor, and if I have exhorted, extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. Okay. So, uh, by this point in Jesus' public ministry, he's well known throughout the region. Zacchaeus, because he is a tax collector and because he's acting as an agent of the foreign power, the Romans, is considered a public sinner. Um, he hears that Jesus, this renowned prophet and miracle worker, is coming to town, so he's intrigued. He wants to, you know, see this celebrity. Um, because of his height, he can't get a good look, so he climbs the tree. And it's there that Luke says, Jesus saw him. Um, my favorite artistic rendering of this scene uh, portrays Jesus with a, with a group of onlookers there at the tree, pointing up. And Zacchaeus is holding on to a limb with one arm, and he's pointing to himself with the other as if, me? Like, you're, you're calling me this public sinner? And you know, it's worth pondering for a second, why would Jesus call Zacchaeus? Why would he call this notorious sinner? And I think it has to do with the fact that Jesus sees of what Zacchaeus is really made. He sees, he perceives what Zacchaeus is truly capable of. And what do I mean by that? Um, prior to this encounter, if someone had asked one of these onlookers, who is this Zacchaeus? What is he like? They would have said things like, he's a traitor, he's greedy, he's a thief. And yet, after Jesus calls him, you see the exact opposite. The law at the time required that if you cheated somebody, to make restitution, you would pay them double what you cheated them of. Yet Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'll repay anybody I've extorted four times over, double what I'm supposed to. And he says, I'll give half my possessions to the poor. So here's this man who um, just shortly before was enriching himself at the expense of other people. Now, not only is he making restitution, but he's sharing his goods with the needy. He's not only acting justly, he's acting generously. What happened? Somehow, sisters, in his encounter with the Lord, Zacchaeus's heart begins to warm, not just to Jesus, but to other people. As Jesus begins to reveal to Zacchaeus his true dignity, Zacchaeus responds. He's becoming aware that he's the son of God, and he begins now to think and act like one. Sisters, this is an image of what happens in confession. We encounter Christ in the person of the priest. We acknowledge the ways in which we've sinned. And Jesus not only forgives our sins, as important as that is, but he also restores us to the dignity that we have as a son or daughter of God. In other words, it's not just taking care of something we've done wrong. It's restoring us to the stature 
and place and dignity that we truly have as a son or daughter of God. Given that we have received this grace, we can now begin immediately to live like who we are. I mean, I don't know if you picked up on it, but you can go back and read it again, but Zacchaeus comes down quickly. In other words, once we've forgiven, there's no need to waste time. It's not like we're kind of on probation as a semi-son or daughter of God and we've got to kind of prove ourselves that this forgiveness was really merited and we're really sincere. No, once we're forgiven, we're immediately restored to God's grace as his son or daughter. We ought to begin immediately, like Zacchaeus, to act like one. You know, um, it's funny, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but I think Jesus wants to see Zacchaeus even more. Um, in other words, Jesus sees him, but it's not just, you know, his eyes uh, identify Zacchaeus in the tree. Jesus has a certain vision for Zacchaeus's life, and I think Jesus' vision is deeper and more perceptive than probably even what Zacchaeus could see for himself. And Zacchaeus, for his part, doesn't insist on his own perception of who he is. He doesn't say, no, Lord, I'm too sinful. I'm not worthy of you calling me. No. Zacchaeus trusts the Lord's perception and begins to act with the dignity that Jesus says that he has as a son of God. And sisters, Jesus has a vision for each one of us. And, you know, his love for us is not blind. It's not as if he doesn't see the reality of who we are or what we've done. He does see that. It's just that he's able to perceive not only our sin, but he's able to see, perceive beyond that to what we truly are capable of, how we truly are made in the image and likeness of God. Our sin does not block his perception of who we are and of what we're capable. So my encouragement to us is do not let sin, either past or present, hold you back. When you hear the Lord call you, if you have to repent, fine. Be humble about it, repent. Go to confession, deal with it. But choose to believe in who Jesus says and sees who you are rather than insisting on, no, my perception is more accurate. Jesus really is able to perceive much deeper into who we are than even we do. Okay, a third, uh, a third obstacle um, has to do with weakness. Um, you know, I, I found it's not uncommon in life that some people will keep their expectations low and their goals modest as a kind of insurance against disappointment. I'm not even talking in the spiritual realm. I'm just talking generally in life. Um, and, you know, maybe at times we do the same thing in the spiritual life. Namely, we lower the bar on holiness because we're afraid we can't do it, that we don't have what it takes. And I guess my, my encouragement to you is, the Lord doesn't need us to be Superman or, you know, Wonder Woman or something. All he asks is for ordinary men and women, 
who are willing to yield to his grace. I'd like to give you a couple quick examples. I don't know if you ever heard of Mother Frances Cabrini. Um, she was born in Italy and came to this country in the early 20th century. Uh, she's the first American citizen to be canonized. So she was born in Italy, but came here and was canonized and is now a saint. Well, Mother Cabrini had a terrible fear of water and drowning. Um, and yet, she crossed the ocean 30 times in her life. She yielded to God's grace despite her weakness and was able to do things that left to herself she never would have done. Or I don't know if you know the name, uh, St. Joseph Benedict Labore. He was a Frenchman who lived in Europe in the 1700s. He was afflicted with mental illness at a time when very little was known about such things and certainly there was no medication to help him. He cooperated with God's grace and became a saint. Um, you may know of uh, St. Thomas More. Um, he was a lawyer, a lawyer who became a saint. Maybe that's why I like him. Uh, he lived in the 1500s um, and he rose to occupy the second highest position in England. Only one higher was the king. Um, when King Henry decreed that his subjects should take an oath swearing their allegiance to him, not only as the highest authority in government, but also in the church, More refused. Uh, Thomas More believed the pope was the head of the church, not the king. While he was in prison for his refusal to take this oath, he was visited by his daughter Meg and his wife Alice, and they were trying to persuade him to take the oath so that he could get out of prison and they could get on with their life. Um, and they also feared that if he persisted, he would lose his life. Um, Moore tried to reassure them by saying that it wouldn't come to that. It wouldn't come to an issue of his losing his life, he said, because I'm a very great coward. And then poking himself in the chest, he said, and this is not the stuff of which martyrs are made. Uh, he used his intelligence and his legal education to try to avoid the issue as much as he could. But finally, when it came down to a question of either violating his conscience or dying, he refused to take the oath and he was beheaded. You know, personally, I believe he was truthful when he told his daughter and his wife that I'm a great coward and that this is not the stuff of which martyrs are made. I believe he really truly believed that. Uh, in a real way, he didn't have what it takes to be a martyr. But God supplied him with the grace he needed to be able to do it. I think that it's the same way with us sisters. In and of ourselves, we probably don't have what it takes to be holy. But it's not simply a question simply of our own resources, um, but also of God's grace. And that makes the difference. I was struck with uh, a number of the PowerPoint slides that we had last night uh, at the orientation, but one in particular uh, with this point was one of the quotes from Mother Luisita, our Lord will make you very virtuous and give you what you are lacking. That is the key. You know, there's a saying that 90% uh, of life is showing up. Um, I, I don't know if that's exactly true, um, but it does have a certain truth when it's applied to the spiritual life, meaning 
that a good percentage of the formula of growing in holiness is continuing to be open to God's grace, even when we feel we don't have what it takes. As long as we do that, I think it puts us in a position where God can work with us. He, you know, he's given us the gift of free will. He will not violate it. But as long as we can keep trying to open ourselves up to his grace, saying, Lord, I don't think I can do this, but, but, give me the grace and I'll try. But I'll at least try to open myself up to it. It gives him room to work, to make up for what we lack, like he did with these saints. Uh, there's one final obstacle I wanted to mention, and that's the one that says, well, you know, I'm not a priest or religious. Uh, I can't pray all day. Um, and the church understands that. But she still calls us all to holiness. Uh, the goal, whether we're religious or lay people, is still the same, holiness. However, the paths to that holiness do differ. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of St. Francis de Sales, but um, if you have a chance to read some of his works, uh, he, I would highly recommend them. Not only because he's a saint, um, but because many of his writings are really directed to the spiritual life of lay people. He was far ahead of his time. He lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Um, but he really was directing his guidance and advice to lay people. Uh, he once said this, devotion, you know, the pursuit of the spiritual life, must be exercised in a different way by the worker, the servant, the prince, the widow, the young girl, and the married woman. Now, it's not all just one package that everybody applies the same. And he says, and not only is this true, meaning not only does your state in life impact the way you pursue holiness, but the practice of devotion must also be adapted to the strength, activities, and duties of each particular person. So he's saying, you know, not one size fits all. You've got to find your way in the midst of the state of life you have and your particular situation. So the pursuit of holiness is going to differ depending on life state, personal makeup, but that we pursue it, all of us should not differ. You know, John Paul II, during his pontificate, canonized nearly 500 people, and that's not including blesseds or venerables like Mother Lucia. That's just canonized saints. Just to put it in perspective, he canonized more saints in his 28-year pontificate than all his predecessors for the 500 years immediately before his pontificate. Now, at different times, he was challenged on this by people in the church. Like, what are you doing? Are you lowering the bar here so that we have more saints? And his response was twofold. He said, no, I'm not lowering the bar. Now, he would say, I have devoted more resources into trying to investigate possible uh, canonized saints. That's true. But I'm not lowering the bar on what we expect. He said, you know, the gospel has now spread over the whole world from its first proclamation, 2000, now spread over the whole world, and it's had 2,000 years to sink in. I think we ought to expect to see more holiness. That was one response. His second response was, I'm convinced that God is not only generous, but he is extravagant in giving grace to grow in holiness. And many, many of the saints that John Paul canonized are not priests or religious. 
They're lay people. Speaking of that, one of the people that John Paul beatified was a young man named Pier Giorgio Frassati. Uh, Frassati was not a priest or religious. He was a layman. He was an engineering student at the University of Turin in Italy uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, even though he only lived a short time, he died at the age of 24. Uh, in 1925. He lived uh, a very full life, and I don't mean that just spiritually, but naturally. Uh, he loved the nature. He loved the arts. He was an athlete. He loved playing soccer. He loved skiing. He loved mountain climbing. In fact, he used to say that if his studies allowed him, he would spend whole days in the mountain. Um, truth be told, he probably spent more time in the mountains than he should have because he was not a very good student. Uh, he had a whole group of friends. Uh, he affectionately called them the shady characters. So you don't get the impression that they're all like in church all the time, every time. Um, he was very much in love with a young woman. He, for his part, was known to his friends as the holy terror because he liked to play practical jokes. So somebody who just loved life naturally. And yet he was also very spiritual. Uh, he attended Mass daily, and by the time he was 17, he was dedicating most of his free time visiting the poor of Turin. In fact, when and his parents had only the, the slimmest glimmer of what was actually going on. They were astounded when at his funeral, thousands of the poor of Turin turned out to pay their last respects. They, they just had no clue. You might say, well, you know, he probably came from a pious family and all that, and that's why he's holy. Uh, that's not the case. His mother was an inactive Catholic, and his father was an agnostic. So not exactly the ideal setting for raising a saint, but he did. Um, I, I, th I hope you got um, uh, the holy card. Yeah, it's one of my favorites um, for a couple of reasons. One is um, because there's a priest in it. Uh, no, actually, uh, I like it because it's a photograph. So it's not just like an artistic, we actually see what, what he looked like. And he's having a good time. He's the one in the middle with his uh, arm on the guy's shoulder. And, um, and that, it looks like he's smoking a cigarette. He's actually not because um, he had one sister who had one child. And so his niece is still living. And um, when I wrote to her to get more of these cars, because she's very active in promoting his cause for canonization. So I described the holy card, and I said, you know, he's in the middle of friends, and he's laughing, and there's a priest there, and he's holding a cigarette. She wrote me back. She said, okay, here's the cards. And by the way, that's not a cigarette. It's a cigar. And then she gave, <laughs> and then she gave me the name. He loved this type of cigar. Anyway, um, but, but I like it for all those reasons, especially because he's smiling. He's having a good time. And I mean, it expresses the reality that being holy doesn't mean that you're somehow unnatural or dour. Um, he had a good time. Um, but in particular, I like the prayer on the back. And I think it ties in with what we're talking about today. Heavenly Father, give us the courage to strive for the highest goals, to flee every temptation to be mediocre, 
Enable us to aspire to greatness, as Pier Giorgio did, and to open our hearts in joy to your call to holiness. Free us from the fear of failure. We want to be, Lord, firmly and forever united to you. Grant us the graces we ask you through Pier Giorgio's intercession by the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, sisters, is the pursuit of holiness a high call? Uh, you bet it is. Um, will we fail and fall short at times along the way? I know I do. But even more, I know that the Lord is compassionate and he is merciful. And I believe it's better to undertake the challenge and fall at times along the way than to settle for some mediocre existence. Jesus knows that we're capable of it. And he knows that it really is deep in our heart what we want. And I think for that reason, it's what he calls us to.